On October 14, 2014, Pastor Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill, the Seattle-based church he had founded and led since 1996. Driscoll gained national attention for the popularity of his church in a largely secular part of the United States, but also for his own brash, at times crude, irreverent, and caustic temperament. For years, to the public, this largely manifested in his sermons. But over time, rumors of his abusive leadership style began to emerge. Upon accepting his resignation, Mars Hill Church's board of overseers stated that Driscoll had, quote, been guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and harsh speech, and leading the staff and elders in a domineering manner, unquote, but had, quote, never been charged with immorality, illegality, or heresy. Most of the charges involved attitudes and behaviors reflected by a domineering style of leadership. Prior to his resignation, Church Planting Network Acts 29 had removed Driscoll, its founder, from leadership, and Driscoll had also apologized for previous controversy, including plagiarism and making crude comments. After he stepped down, Mars Hill Church disbanded, with many of the sites closing or becoming their own independent church. Today, Driscoll leads Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, which he founded in 2016. We wanted to revisit the story, partially because it's the topic of a new Christian Today 12-part podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Also, because so many elements of the story remain influential in how the evangelical world works today. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted, you and I have been into podcasts since we started, or since I started, I guess, and I found out that you were into podcasts when I got here at CT. And I feel like we used to trade podcast topics all the time. And I think you and I are both really excited about this new podcast that we have coming out. So that's part of the news story. And also part of the news story is that we are covering a big news story from a couple of years ago. What is your immediate reaction to all of this? Yeah. I mean, I do have a, a, an excitement about launching kind of a long form narrative journalism podcast. Thrilled that CT is doing that and have long wanted CT to do that. So that's pretty great. But also having been here from the time when Mark Driscoll was just starting Mars Hill to the time when it imploded, you know, being here for the, the rise and the fall of Mars Hill got kind of watched a lot of that, had a lot of friends involved, had a brother who was living in Seattle at the time and kind of giving me his kind of local perspective of, of what was going on at Mars Hill. And then just watching, you know, this is kind of the interesting thing. If I'm gut checking this, there's a little bit of this where I'm like, oh man, like I kind of had my fill of Mars Hill a little bit back in the day. And every time you, we would do a story on Mars Hill, I would have, I'd have mixed feelings because, you know, it was a hard story to cover you knew that it was going to go nuts traffic-wise. Like just saying Mark Driscoll or Mars Hill, that that was <laughs> definitely going to drive traffic, you know. And I'm the kind of person always wanting to kind of give a real, you know, to me of gut checks, always kind of wanting to gut check that and be like, are we covering this because it's a really important development or are we covering it just because our, we know that our readers will, you know, eat it up like candy? You know, you don't want to be too, you don't want to pander. You don't want to do stuff just because it gets traffic and you don't want to, feed a certain kind of 
either bloodlust or prurient interest or any of that kind of stuff. So <laughs> I remember feeling that kind of mixed feeling in my stomach when we do these stories. I'm like, oh, time to boot up the Google traffic and see how many people are reading that story versus like, I think we really had to do that story. And But you know, what's nice about this podcast is like having listened to it, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I can tell that this podcast was made with that same kind of ambivalence being like, yep, we're going to tell a story that we know people are going to be interested in listening to, but we're going to do it carefully and in a very CT way to not just do it. This is not the podcast that you would get from some of the other podcast networks. <laughs> there's, there's, I'm not going to name the podcast right now, but there is a podcast. There are a couple podcasts out there right now doing some, you know. It's not uh, a true crime podcast, ba- but about a church instead. <laughs> yeah, well, there are. There is one of those right now, and it's not great. And so, you know, I've heard some of these kind of like inside the evangelical scandal kind of podcast. This isn't quite that. How about you, Morgan? What, what's your what's your gut check to CT doing a podcast and also to coming back to this story that also you you lived out a bit? Yeah, I lived out journalistically. I was looking at some of our past reporting, and I have some of the bylines for coverage that we did on Mars Hill. And I joined CT in the midst of Driscoll's fall, I guess you would say, in that... Yeah, one of the stories that I wrote was actually about when he did resign and was at that time learning what counted as a CT news story and not. And kind of when I became familiar with this whole idea of idea-driven pieces, which is similar to what a lot of our listeners experience on this podcast, where we often do our best to excavate the deeper themes that are being illuminated by a particular story rather than just focus on the actual acts themselves. But in this case, you know, Ted, you were talking about the challenge of figuring out what to cover and how to cover. We were in a situation where there was a huge name because Mark Driscoll had that type of platform and clout. And the scandals that were being exposed were also extremely newsworthy in many ways. I had mentioned, for instance, this particular like plagiarism situation that came out. And so some of the scandals were of different nature. Some of them did have to do with his own elements of being an abusive leader, but some of them had to do with other things that did feel important. Plus, Mark, as is also kind of made clear in the intro that we were discussing, he started different institutions. And so I know we've always been, we've always cared at CT about the life of these institutions. And as a result, there were different issues that were raised with his leadership there. Anyway, I bring that all up to say that it was challenging figuring out how to cover him will also provide the context that we needed to give our audience a sense of what was really going on. I I think that in many ways it really benefits to be able to come back to the story years later where we can see all of this play out and also just see all the stuff that we missed at the time. I'm 100% interested in kind of revisiting this partially because I do think that it can feel like such this crazy, almost anomaly story. And yet There are so many elements that seem that they were not reflected on by large parts of the movement and in many ways replicated over the coming past decade, I guess, since this all happened. So, yeah, let's get into it. Let us talk to our wonderful coworker, who is the person who did all these interviews and made this podcast. And Ted, want to introduce him? Mike Cosper is CT's director of podcasts, in addition to hosting the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, and producing that. He also hosts Cultivated, 
focus a number of our other podcasts. He has written a number of excellent books. I guess the one I will recommend to listeners the most is my favorite, Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. Probably get into some of his other previous history as well in this podcast. But hey, Mike, welcome to CT's other podcast. So <laughs> we're thrilled to have a Mike Cost for a quick to listen episode. That's awesome. It's the Avengers episode of Quick to Listen. Glad to be here. Thanks for giving me a chance to come talk about this project with you. Well, let's start with kind of, you know, we've been talking about Driscoll at the top of the show, but the title is very much The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Tell me a little bit about, is this the story of Mark Driscoll? Is this the story of Mars Hill? Is there a difference between those stories? What story are you telling here? They're kind of inseparable, right? You know, in many ways, the 2000s, the, the aughts, saw this explosion of church planting. You know, one guy I talked to for the podcast was a researcher for Leadership Network at the time and has kind of described this period of time as probably the most successful church planting generation in in North American history. And Driscoll was kind of at the forefront of that movement. And what followed in a lot of ways was not just a celebrity pastor, but a celebrity pastor who was really identified with the brand of the church you know, by virtue of the fact that his resignation led to the the end of the institution tells you a lot about how entwined the two stories really are. Do you think that's especially more so, I mean, thinking of church plants over the last several decades, you could think of Saddleback Church and Rick Warren having a certain inseparability, Will Creek Community Church. I mean, you can go down, down the line to think of a number of fairly prominent megachurches over the last, both the baby boomer era and the Xer era, I guess. Was Driscoll of a kind or was he especially so? I think he was of a kind for sure. I mean, we'll talk on the show a bit about how what happened with Mars Hill was really an, an evolution. You know, you mentioned Rick Warren and, and Hybels. I mean, he was his model was really an evolution of what they did, even though at the time they would have said it was a reaction to it. So for sure, I mean, he's he's of a kind there. But part of what's so interesting about the Mars Hill model is because video venue became so much easier and affordable and capable of multiplying it, by the end, you had a tremendous proportion of the resources going purely and simply towards the Sunday morning service and to the exclusion of community ministries or benevolence or anything else. I mean, it was over and over and over again, resources got centralized. And Driscoll famously, in multiple multiple times and places, you know, famously would tell the staff when they would raise concerns about this stuff, I am the brand, right? Like he and the leaders around him basically saw the whole functional purpose of the church was to try to get people in the doors so they could hear Mark preach, believing that that was the central and most important ministry of the whole church. So in some ways, I mean, I think that's happening in lots of churches. It's a phenomenon that needs to be examined. But like so much of this story, what the Mars Hill story does is it, is it shows you a, a phenomenon that's happening a lot of places, but happened at Mars Hill in kind of an exaggerated and outsized way, right? Like they said the quiet part out loud. Mike, I think that we would be remiss when we're trying to landscape this church planting world and talk about the brand and so forth. If we didn't talk about the edginess, quote unquote, that Mark seemed to at least become famous for. What do we make of this quote unquote edginess? How did it actually manifest on Sunday mornings? And 
what exactly about it was capable of causing national attention? For a lot of people who first encountered Mark in the early 2000s, it was because Don Miller's book was a New York Times bestseller. Mark shows up in that book as, you know, Mark the cussing pastor and lots of people then, you know, went to the internet to try to figure out, is this a real person? Who is this? And they found Driscoll. What made him so interesting in the pulpit, there, there's, there's a lot to say about what made him interesting, but for one thing, I mean, he talks a ton in Acts 29 events and boot camps when he talks about preaching, about how he really doesn't like preachers. He really doesn't study preachers. He studies stand-up comedians. You get that when you start to kind of go back and watch the videos. A lot of his presentation is built around the kind of rhythms and responding to the crowd and working the crowd that you saw in, in stand-up comics. I would say sort of a, with that came a desire to like push to the edges and to make people uncomfortable and to make them laugh in ways that were uncomfortable. He'd push you to the edge of sort of, am I offended? You know, he's insulting me as a, as a man or he's insulting me as a woman. He did a lot of jokes and, and edgy stuff around gender in a lot of different ways. But then he'd rope you back in by kind of connecting whatever he, he had to say to the gospel and to a message of, of sin and repentance and, you know, restoration. Particularly when he first kind of appeared, people just didn't quite know what to make of him. Again, one of the things we talk about in the podcast is just this contrast that he represented with so much else that was happening in the church there in the, the end of the late 90s. I mean, this is still kind of the height of the seeker-sensitive movement. And for Mark to show up at that time, he doesn't fit in that bucket. The emergent church thing is happening, which is kind of a somewhat liberalizing, community-centric movement that we look at in the podcast, too. And Mark is this outlier. He's loud, he's angry, he preaches for an hour or more. You know, the, the fact that he was hard to peg was part of what attracted such a crowd to him. You have made this podcast that has so many things happening into it, but I wanted to talk a little bit also about church polity as well, which is essentially a word that I learned while I was actually writing the story for CT, when I had come in here, I'd never heard the word polity before, but has to do with how a church is organized, right? And if there's anything that I learned while covering Mars Hill is that there were a number of different <laughs> ways that power was distributed and then redistributed over the course of the church's life. What type of ways does your show get into church polity? And why is this an important thing to look at when it comes to telling the story? Yeah, so there were kind of three distinct phases of Mars Hill's polity, and they definitely marked phases of the church. They definitely also marked the centralization of power over the years. When they launched, when they first kind of established and established elders, for one thing, when the church was planted, it was planted with the idea that, and the story that was told in those first years was it was, it was really co-founded by three guys, Mark and a guy named Leif Moy and, and a guy named Mike Gunn. Over time, those guys kind of found different, you know, Mike went and planted a church elsewhere. Much further down the line, Leaf would leave. That was ugly. And then there came a point where those guys were literally written out of the history of the church. Point being, it starts with this kind of flat leadership. A few years later, they had a, a much broader-based, elder-based leadership that was very broad, but also very flat. 
And then starting around 2006 or seven, things start to, to concentrate. They put together an executive team and the elders themselves don't have much authority anymore. And then that evolves again a few years later where there's actually like an external board that's overseeing that executive team. So the, the elders have no authority anymore at that point. So for sure, there's a, there's a really important polity story at the heart of this thing because those dynamics were, whether you want to say they were manipulated, whether you want to say they were evolved, they, for sure, I mean, regarding what we said earlier, they were reflective of this centralization of the whole life of the church around the preaching ministry. I think there's a lot to that. And there's a lot of folks who were part of Mars Hill that lament that because they lost the capacity to hold Mark accountable over the years. There's a part of me too, that as you look at this and you look at other churches across the country, there's a pretty wild spectrum of ways that churches govern. Charismatic leaders and, and dangerous leaders seem to find ways to do lots of damage in lots of different situations. And you know, I can't help but think, I, I remember Dallas Willard one time, I can't remember how he got onto it, but he talked about political philosophy. And he said, you know, any political ph philosophy would result in utopia if everybody just obeyed the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think there's some truth to that with church polity, like character's destiny. And if we step into leadership in, in all kinds of different structures, but we have a posture of mutual submission and, and humility and repentance and, and all of that, the polity itself can work. I would say the last thing I'll say on this is that the fact, the evolution of those different things never worked, I think is revelatory of the problem in and of itself. Yeah, it does seem like one of the things that comes up in this podcast, but also just how, kind of however you were to tell the story is that that some of those questions about who governs and whose church is it and you know the the I'm the brand but also who is accountable to whom is kind of directly tied to some of the preaching and emphasis that you you mentioned that Driscoll brought to the table in, in kind of an unusual way in the early 2000s and that's this kind of emphasis on kind of a a hypermasculine mixed martial arts throw some punches kind of Christianity that the ways in which Driscoll would kind of talk about church governance was also was not dissimilar to the way in which he would kind of criticize young men in general about being too demure or too feminine or whatever. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you listen to kind of the way he would cast vision, it was almost as though he expected every man in the church to aspire to be an elder. And that that was like the embodiment of what of what true masculinity was as leader in the church, leader in the home, leader, leader, leader. I think that that definitely was, was a part of it. And the bar for being like a quote unquote real man in the church was really, really high. And it had this dual effect of really inspiring men, but it also had a, an effect of really discouraging them over time as well. The reason I ask that is is because I, I have been trying to figure out to what degree is Mark Driscoll indicative of something larger in the church, not just you know indicative of what was going on in the church in the 2000s and now, but also over time. But Christianity has been criticized for being too feminine ever since it, it started. It was one of the critiques that, that pagans made uh, about Christianity back in the early days. And at the same time, there's always been kind of inside the church, preachers anxious about men and about are men involved enough and are men stepping up enough? I mean, you even see this a little bit in some of Paul's writings. You know, I'm more familiar with kind of the last century and, and at the last, you know, the turn of the 20th century, you had Angelus Billy Sunday 
to, he used to have this famous prayer, Lord, save us from offhanded, flabby-cheeked, brittle-boned, weak-kneed, thin-skinned, pliable, plastic, spineless, effeminate, ossified, three-carat Christianity. You know, he used to shout, you know, many think a Christian has to be some sort of dishrag proposition, wishy-washy, sissified, sort of a galoot that lets everyone make a door mad out of him. You know, you got to update the word galoot, although what a great word. Why, how did you <laughs> lose the word galoot? You change one or two of those words, and that definitely sounds like Mark Driscoll. You could jump another 50 years. You could probably pull some of the same kinds of quotes from preachers like Carl McIntyre, who is kind of a mid-century fundamentalist leader. Both Billy Sunday and Carl McIntyre were kind of like Driscoll. You know, they were admired and befriended by kind of old-school Calvinist leaders, but also kind of a little bit off to the side, kind of remembered for where they parted ways with Calvinist institutions. But what I was thinking about is, you have this long stream of Driscoll being this, the church is too feminine, we need to get back to muscular Christianity, or men need to be men, and you men in the pews are, are too effeminate. It seems to me what changed in the 2000s was that there were people in the church saying, eh, that's not great. Back in the days of Billy Sunday and Carl McIntyre, you'd have pastors removed from moral failure, but that always, almost always meant an affair or you know, occasionally theft. But this line that you would have before about having been in you know, the Driscoll was guilty of arrogance or responding with a quick temper and harsh speech, some of those kinds of things, you it's pretty rare to find some of those statements in long-term church history or recent church history. So I guess I'm wondering, to what degree is the Mars Hill story debate over the definition of pride, of gentleness, of strength, of what it means to be of being guilty of arrogance, you know, like you would look through a lot of characters in church history and say, yeah, he was probably guilty of arrogance. You know, you look at Martin Luther, you look at a number of people, you're like, yeah, definitely he responded to conflict with a quick temper and harsh speech. You look at a number of leaders from church history and you say, yeah, they definitely led their churches in a domineering manner. And now we have an attitude where that is, we say that's, that's a form of spiritual abuse or we say that's a problem or that's, you are not, following what the Bible says as marks of, you know, eldership and, and being a presbyter. Yeah. To what degree is the Mars Hill story a debate over those kinds of terms? I think that's such an important question. I mean, the Luther example is like the most obvious one because he didn't hide any of that in his writing. Yeah, definitely. If, if you know, you had the swearing pastor, you, that case is much more easily made of Luther than it is for Driscoll. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. If you're talking about scatological language. Anyway. <laughs> the proof in the pudding to me comes back to this issue, though, of is there a context for accountability? Is there a context for mutual submission? Do you have stories in the lives of of some of these people of them being confronted and repenting? And I know, like, in church history, there's a lot of examples where you don't. You know, I don't think Mark is is unique in that way at all. In fact, when I was pastoring and, and part of a church— it was really common to hear people say, well, you know, Mark is a once-in-a-generation once leader and kind of like our Martin Luther. And it was almost like a shorthand for glossing over the things that were problematic. I would say as well, the fact that it's not historically an anomaly doesn't necessarily excuse it either. I think what makes it so difficult in our day and age is this phenomenon of mass communication. The reality is that Mark was the first internet pastor, the first internet famous guy. They had a website with downloadable sermons before a lot of really big churches around the country did because they were in Seattle and they had tech guys in their church. So it was part of the reason why he caught on and kind of spread like wildfire as fast as he did. 
And that's a double-edged sword because the big crowd means a big fall, a bigger angry mob that's, that's cheering for your fall, which Mark certainly had over the years. What do you think's behind the other part, that there were people both within Mars Hill, taking aside the kind of professional critics of Mars Hill, but some of the internal folks, the people who eventually removed Mark from pastoring? That seems different. That seems like that probably wouldn't have happened 50, 100, 500 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think it didn't have to happen in Seattle. One of the things we get to, you know, it's not a big spoiler, but I mean, one of the things we get to right away in this podcast is the reality that the board of elders that were investigating Mark, that had the, you know, the authority to to kind of respond to all these accusations, in spite of all the angry mob and everything else that was happening at the time, they weren't asking Mark to resign. They were asking him to take a leave of absence and do some reflection and work on some, you know, reconciled relationships. And, and they wanted him back. There was a board of overseers, a board of advisors that thought that the elders' recommendations were too stringent. And there was some dispute over all of that. How long has he gone? Blah, blah, blah. What language do we use to describe all of this? But ultimately, everybody wanted him back inside Mars Hill. And they wanted to restore him. It was truly stunning from the inside when he actually did resign. So I think, I mean, even in this case, there was, because people believed in him to the very end, believed in him as that once in a generation guy, they were holding out hope like, okay, let's deal with this, but then let's come back together and move on. You know, I, I think if, if Mark had done that, if he'd gone on kind of a little apology tour and, you know, made the rounds, I believe pretty strongly Mars Hill would probably still be standing today. So having said all this, Mike, I remember some of the internet discourse around this time and you had different camps. And one of those camps was that everything was rotten and toxic from the beginning, including Mars Hill theology, their church model, the idea of charisma driven leadership, and that, (laughs) yeah, the abuse stemmed from all of that rot. You know, on the other hand, for what you're saying right there, I think there are some who felt like it was possible to reform within the system. Which camp do you fall into? And if you do think that things started out a little bit more innocuously, can you pinpoint two or three things where events and circumstances and actors began to change? Yeah. So this is something I've come to kind of think about in layers. You have this base layer that defines a church, that's its theological convictions. And that shapes everything from, you know, how do we think about salvation and what do we think about gender and manhood, womanhood, and what do we think about polity and all of that. And if you look at Mars Hill, like there are a lot of churches, Mars Hill and Redeemer Presbyterian with Tim Keller essentially shared that base layer. And yet the churches look dramatically different. And obviously Mark and, and Tim have dramatically different impacts and personalities. So you've got that base layer and then sort of above that you have like the philosophy of ministry that's saying, how do we apply this? How do we catechize people? How do these convictions shape what we do? And then the top layer is the culture, like what gets valued and emphasized and what does it feel like to actually be a part of this community? And so when I think about the toxicity of it, I I do think there is a loud chorus that says the problem was the theology. But again, like, so much of the theological conviction is shared in like a lot of small, healthy, you know, PCA churches across the country and Reformed Baptist churches across the country. Um, those exist. They don't make headlines because 
they're not controversial. Where I think things start to get off the rails is around that philosophy of ministry when the church becomes a brand or a product that's being marketed. And then the culture, when a kind of masculinity that is combative and you know, hypersexualized and all of that, that stuff takes a toll. That stuff is really destructive in all kinds of ways. The philosophy and the culture, I think, was pretty ingrained from the beginning, but some of that philosophy of ministry stuff moved over time. And as I've said earlier, like it just centralized and centralized and centralized. It diminished the space for community. It diminished the space for, for discipleship. And so by the time things got really bad in 2014, you know, if you go back to like 2007, when there was the first big leadership crisis over the, the firing of two elders, I think the church itself had such a context of community and relationships amongst people. And the elders had clout and influ- influence in so many ways that when that controversy erupted and the church came out and said, here's what happened, here's why it happened, here's what we own, here's what we think they need to own, et cetera. As a whole, the church really kind of listened and believed. I think because things became so different years later, that context of trust had eroded. And that's more about culture, I think, than theology. So there's a part in the podcast, this first podcast episode, where you get into some of your own history here. I'm curious if that's the part that resonated with you the most, what we were just talking about, or as someone who was in a reformed, but very kind of hip reformed church at the time on staff, also seeing a number of places where you had pastors being disciplined for pride and arrogance issues with some of these questions about masculinity, I think. I don't know. I don't know how much that was part of your story at Sojourn. As you're working on this story, what parts hit you the most as like, man, did I see, I saw, I saw that in my own, in my own story. You have met Mark, but you weren't super close as I, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. We met a few times at like retreats and conferences and he was always super friendly. He was familiar with some of the stuff that I was doing at, at Sojourn Music and, and all of that. And so, I mean, he was nothing but ever kind to me and he held my baby once and told me she was beautiful. So that was like, that was like our longest interaction. Um, <laughs> well, that'll endear you to any pastor. It really does, man. It does. And, and he famously loved people's kids. I mean, that's an interesting thing that came out in the interviews even. Uh, so I was on staff at a church from 2000 to 2015. And in that, that window of 03 to, to 10, I, we were part of Acts 29. And so that's how I got to really know the Mars Hill story. I, I made a lot of friends there and a lot of the folks on this podcast are people that, that I've known throughout that time. You know, our church had this funny sort of mirror effect of what was happening for good and, and ill at Mars Hill. We, you know, rapid growth and to the multi-site thing. It seemed like after multi-site for us and for a lot of churches that were kind of part of that cohort was when things just got really hard and really, and really toxic and difficult. And I left in part because things were so toxic. And I left in 15 and then our lead pastor resigned in 17. Um, and with similar stated reasons. So I think for, for me, a lot of this is, there is an element of like personal reckoning. Why did this happen? How did this happen? I can look at my own church. I can look at some of my own leaders and coworkers and as they've processed things. I mean, again, it, it mirrors some of the experiences of these folks at Mars Hill and 
there's an element of it of, of trying to understand how it happens and why there's an, a personal element of I'm trying to understand even like what was my own culpability um, as somebody who facilitated and, and propped up a culture and a leader that was, that was unhealthy over time. I think as we look at the story, I really do think there are threads in this that don't just implicate a certain kind of church or a certain kind of leader or, or any one thing, but, but really implicate a, a culture of Christianity that tends to just value the wrong things or, or that approaches the, the church with a consumeristic mindset. And so we're, we're looking for brands and we're looking for hype and we want the shine of somebody who's kind of charismatic and a star. And I think the inverse is really true too. And I think it's horrible, but we also love to cheer like an angry mob when people have their fall. It's like the, the circus mentality. I think all these things are driving why this story is so important to tell. And, and the last thing I'd say on that front is when the Mars Hill thing went down in 2014, and I talked to some friends who were close to it, the pain they experienced, I don't think as much news coverage as there were, as many blogs as there were, as much social media as there was, I don't think that translated. You know, the audio nature of the podcast and getting to hear these people tell their stories in their own words. You know, Ira Glass always says stories are a vehicle for empathy. And that's what I hope this one is for us. Without revealing kind of the end of the podcast, we want people to listen to all 12 episodes. Right. What did happen? You know, is there kind of a narrative for what happened to Mars Hill congregants and staff after the church ended? Like, what are the ways that people made sense of this? Was it churches close up all the time? We've run a number of articles on that. What might have made the Mars Hill closure exceptional for the people after it closed? And now that we're looking, you know, many years down the road, are there any trend lines you're seeing in terms of ex-Mars Hill folks? I think that's one of the factors that makes this story so interesting is lots of churches have fallen pastors. Lots of churches go through similar things. Usually they don't shut their doors forever, particularly when they're this big. The aftermath, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of the story. It seems like people generally fall into one of three camps. And as much as I've worked on this story, like it's really hard to know what the proportions are. I'd say I think the largest group are people who are walking wounded, but are still, for the most part, holding on to their Christian convictions. They found other churches, you know, 11 of the 14. By the time they closed, they'd already lost one campus. So they were down to 14. 11 of those spun out and became independent churches. Some of those ended up merging with each other or merging with other churches over time. They all took huge attendance hits, massive attendance hits. That's like one track, these sort of walking wounded believers trying to understand what happened. There were a lot of folks who have deconstructed. They've either left, you know, what we would probably define as Christian orthodoxy or they've left Christianity altogether. And one person kind of explained that to me in, a, in an interesting way. They said, you know, if you came to faith at Mars Hill, from the very beginning, Mark positioned himself in people's minds as a spiritual dad. If you didn't see this from the inside, that was your experience of church then what happened is that one day dad packed his bags and left and never came back and never said goodbye. They sort of felt abandoned and deconstructed appropriately or naturally as a result. There's still a contingency and it's a small contingency, but there's still a contingency of people who felt like Mark was wronged in this process and their frustrations are with the elders who created the situation in which he 
again, according to their narrative, created the circumstances in which he felt like he had to resign and, and leave the church. For them, it's a whole different kind of betrayal. Mike, we are very excited about the rise and fall of Mars Hill launching this week. I know it came out on June 22nd. Should listeners, if they end up subscribing, expect a new podcast every Tuesday? Is that what is going to be happening here? It'll be pretty much every single Tuesday for the next few months. We've got 12 episodes. There'll be a bonus episode that drops in here or there. There'll be a couple of breaks built where we'll skip a week because a lot of listeners will know their story is a little bit alive and moving even as we speak. So we're giving ourselves a little space to keep producing as we go. And we actually have part of the first episode that we will be playing following this conversation. Mike, do you have anything that you want to say as our Quick to Listen listeners get queued up to hear the beginning of the first episode? I just encourage people to, you know, click over and subscribe. As you probably often hear in the credits here, leave us a rating and review. It helps people find the show. Well, congrats on your show, Mike. I'm definitely looking forward to listening to it. And I bet many of our listeners are as well. Everyone on Click to Listen, that is it for us this week. We are now going to be playing the first episode of The Rise and Fall of Marcel. Let's begin at the end. The thought never once came to mind that Mark would resign. This is Tim Smith talking about events that took place in the fall of 2014. Tim was a 16-year veteran on the staff at Mars Hill, Seattle, and a longtime friend and ally of its pastor, Mark Driscoll. It wasn't even a possibility in my mind. I'd heard Driscoll preach from the front at conferences and sermons on Sunday that he started this church, that God called him here, that he was never going to leave it, that he'd preach his own funeral, get into the casket, and close the own, his, own, uh, his own coffin on himself. But, but he... He sent a letter at some point earlier in the day on, on Tuesday, the 14th. Um, I think the board of advisors spent most of that day trying to talk him out of it from what they told me. But by Tuesday night, it, I think it was clear that that he was serious. At its peak, the church had nearly 15,000 people in 15 locations. And Driscoll's sermons were being downloaded by the millions. But for years, conflict had been brewing inside Mars Hill, largely centered on Mark and the culture of leadership around him. There were accusations of bullying and domineering, leveraging the church to build a personal brand, intimidation, and even violence. Mark had been on leave and under investigation by the elders of the church when he submitted his resignation. So, on Sunday, October 19, 2014, Tim got up to address the congregation he pastored at Mars Hill Church in Portland, Oregon. I began by just letting everybody know that Mark had resigned, that it was a shock to everyone involved. Uh, but then I read this statement. The investigation of formal charges against Mark Driscoll revealed patterns of persistent sin in the areas of arrogance, a quick temper, and domineering leadership. It was a really heavy day. Did I pledge my allegiance? Why are we not looking at the deep-seated reasons for this? For the purpose of progress. Mark just came and said, if you plant a church, he's going to tear it down brick by brick. To priest prophet. We have a culture of church members who would prefer a narcissist leading a church. Playing God in the process. How dare you 
think you are? Was I chasing convenience? There's very real chronic trauma that comes from serving within systems like this. There's a few guys, but if I wasn't gonna end up on CNN, I would go Old Testament on them. You know, a lot of pastors get fired. Driscoll got fired for being an asshole. Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of one church that grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. On this episode, we're looking backward. And we're asking, who killed Mars Hill? Let's back the clock up about six weeks. If you would uh, just give me a bit more of your time, I I prepared a statement that I would like to read. It's August 24th, 2014. Mark had actually already been out of the pulpit for most of the summer. For the past couple of years, the church had been giving Mark a break over the summers, inviting people like Bruce Ware, Brian Chappell, and Jack Dram to come and preach their best sermons. So this was actually Driscoll's first week back. The statement itself is pretty long. It's about 17 minutes. And you can find the whole thing online. But to sum it up a bit, Mark begins by speaking from the heart about his love for Mars Hill and his gratitude for all that God's done there. When a small group of us started what would become Mars Hill in 1996, we could not have dreamed it would be what it is today. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people have become Christians as the gospel of Jesus Christ has proven powerful over and over. Thank you. I genuinely mean this. Um, thank you for being a wonderful church family. He goes on to acknowledge that it's a tumultuous time at Mars Hill, and he takes responsibility for some of the conflict. He's specific about one thing in particular, a series of comments he made on a message board about 15 years earlier. But for the most part, his acknowledgement of fault is pretty broad, pretty vague. God is not honored by conflict, strife, disunity, arguing, slander, gossip, or anything else that is inconsistent with the fruit of the Spirit. And I am deeply, genuinely sorry for the times I have not done my part to live peaceably with all men. This announcement was sparked a few days earlier by a letter that had been submitted to the Board of Advisors and Accountability at Mars Hill, a group of men tasked with overseeing Mark and the church's executive elders. The letter detailed accusations that included slander, violent threats, domineering, and more. It's 11 pages long, and you'll find a link to it in our show notes. It includes specific examples, context, theological definitions, and resources. It was signed by 21 former pastors from the church. But it didn't just come out of the blue. Mars Hill and Mark himself had always attracted a certain amount of controversy. But for the past two years, there had been mounting pressure from both inside and outside the church. And it was reaching a crescendo that August. Just a few weeks earlier, Acts 29, the church planting network founded by Mars Hill, had kicked Driscoll and Mars Hill out, 
citing ungodly and disqualifying behavior. A second letter had been submitted as well, this one from nine current pastors at the church, essentially echoing and amplifying the concerns of the first. In response, Mark was announcing that he was taking a temporary leave of absence from leadership, while a group of elders, assigned by the board, would look into the details of the charges leveled against him. I invite this process. Rather than debating accusations and issues in social media or the court of public opinion. He ends with this. As I look forward to the future, and I do look forward to it, I believe the Lord has shown me I am to do two things with the rest of my life. Love my family. and teach the Bible. I, uh... <laughs> that applause you hear, it matters. It isn't just a polite response. These folks loved Mark, and that's a really critical piece of the puzzle when you try to understand what happened at Mars Hill. Mark was a firebrand, and he attracted a lot of outside criticism over the years for his language, his attitude, his views on masculinity and sexuality, and his general posture towards the world. But if you were inside Mars Hill, those things were features, not bugs. They were part of why you wanted to be there. I think a lot of who we were good at reaching were kids like me. <laughs> this is Joel Brown. Joel served as a staff member and later a pastor from about 1999 all the way to the end of Mars Hill. People who were a little bit disenfranchised with cultural Christianity and had a little bit of that punk rock spirit. And I would say most people had some sort of heart of rebellion, that we wanted to break conventions inside or outside of the church. Mars Hill embodied that spirit in many ways. The music, the aesthetics, the way they eschewed certain norms and ministry, everything had an air of that punk rock spirit. But most of all, it was embodied by Mark himself. Today, it's not uncommon to find pastors with a kind of personal brand. You see them on YouTube or Instagram, wearing expensive sneakers, hanging out with celebrities, taking selfies at hip bars and restaurants. There are whole social media channels like Preachers and Sneakers devoted to pointing this stuff out too. But when Mars Hill started, 25 years ago, things were very, very different. The cool pastors at the time were guys who wore pleated khakis and Hawaiian shirts. They pastored churches that looked like cruise ships and preached in friendly, inviting ways. And out of that world comes Mark Driscoll. He's loud and angry. He talks about drinking beer and watching MMA. He preaches for an hour or more, long, fiery, shouted sermons that talk about hell and judgment and blood and redemption at a time when the church growth experts around him are holding seminars on how to make your church more seeker-sensitive. And he speaks to young men, but not first and foremost in a you-can-do-it-let's-take-the-hill kind of way. He attacks young men, constantly, for the way they've been lured by the surrounding culture into being passive, lazy, and weak. For example, here's an excerpt from a sermon from November 2009. You, you want a guy you can marry and have babies with. You don't want to marry a guy who's a baby. This is unbelievable. I, I swear to you, I keep waiting to go to the mall and just, I'm waiting for the day when guys are in strollers. 
just with meat binkies and sippy cups full of beer. And the girlfriends are like, oh, he's nice. He's got potential. I think he's got a lot of potential. Oh, I messied. I messied. You know, I mean, it's like, good Lord. The whole run of commentary about men is about 25 minutes long. Not the sermon, just this section. The sermon itself lasts an hour. And notice that he's funny, but not in the folksy or self-deprecating way that's common to preachers. He's like an insult comic, especially when he talks to young men. His cadence is like a stand-up comedian, working the room, extending the laughs, moving people along. And if you listen to a lot of Mark's preaching at Mars Hill, and I've listened to a ton of it in the past year, you'll hear the same basic rant again and again. It's part of the overall vision that Mark was trying to cast for the culture he wanted to see at the church. The world is a corrupting and dangerous place. It makes men weak, and it makes women and children vulnerable. But if men hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and follow Jesus, Jesus the warrior and defender, the one who takes initiative and responsibility, then they can build families and communities, they can protect women and children, and they can transform and redeem a city. That's where he drives this sermon and how he ends it. God wants you to be his sons. God wants you to follow by the power of the Holy Spirit in the example of Jesus and in the example of John. I don't care if you buy a truck and you could play some video games and rock out on your guitar. I don't really care. But the issue is when those are prevalent, predominant to preeminent in your life, some of you guys would argue with me and say, it's not a sin. No, but sometimes it's just stupid. You work one part-time job so you can play more guitar. That's dumb. That's really, really dumb. Some of you say, well, it's not a sin. Neither is eating your lawnmower. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. It just doesn't do anything. See, men, you were to be creators and cultivators. If you want to image God, your God is a creator and a cultivator. You create a marriage and you cultivate that woman. You create a child with her and you cultivate that child. You create a, a new family legacy for generations and you cultivate it. You create a business and you cultivate it. You create a ministry and you cultivate it. You want to be a man, you're a creator and a cultivator. You're a producer, not a consumer. You're a giver, not a taker. You bring life, not death. You're not looking for the path of least resistance. You're looking for the path of greatest glory to God. And you take it like John did. And ultimately, what I want for you men is to be filled with the Holy Spirit like John. And I want you to be fathers like Zechariah who are filled with the Spirit. And I want you to marry women like Elizabeth who are filled with the Spirit. And I want you women to be filled with the Spirit like Elizabeth and I want you to love and serve one another in God like Zechariah and Elizabeth did. And then I want you to give birth to children who are filled with the Spirit and serve Jesus like John did. And I want your life to be one of production, not just consumption, one of fruitfulness and faithfulness and not foolishness. I think it's hard to overstate how resonant this message was at Mars Hill and how central it was to the ministry and vision of the church. When you talk to people who were part of the church and ask, what made it tick? What made it work? You'll very quickly hear people talking about men answering the call to take responsibility for themselves, and marriage is healing, or families uniting around the gospel. Many of the pastors of Mars Hill talked about coming to the church as young men, dabbling in school or music, or even sometimes ministry, unsure of what they were doing with their lives, and frankly, not too worried about it. But when they met Mark, when they heard him lay out this kind of big vision for what the church could be and do, it inspired them. 
It offered them something to give their lives away to. And it wasn't about giving themselves to Mark. That description would be way too simplistic. It was this bigger vision of masculinity and transformation powered by the gospel. Ed Stetzer's a researcher and missiologist at Wheaton College and a leading thinker about American evangelicalism. In the earliest days of Mars Hill, he worked for the North American Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention, studying, supporting, and developing resources for church planting. He was pretty involved at Mars Hill as someone who coached and mentored Mark, preached in the church, and served in a variety of ways with Acts 29, including serving on their board. I saw stunning life change. Um, there's a reason that 10,000 plus people engaged there, and there's reasons why it ultimately imploded. And those reasons didn't always become simultaneously apparent. I think that's what people kind of assume, that you'd see all the, the good and the bad simultaneously. No, I think there were some people who were seeing the bad because they were living it and they were experiencing it. And and I, I know a lot of people who have left the faith, people who are pastors are now not Christians mm -hmm. because of their experience in those contexts. And then I know countless numbers of people who, who were just in lives that were just a mess and were redeemed by the power of the gospel and changed at Mars Hill. And 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 see, you know, have moved from there, you know, now see some, but, but again, it's, it's, you could have lived as people did and had very different experiences and very different impact on your life, depending upon what part of the orbit you were in or not in at Mars Hill. That contradiction is the center of the Mars Hill story. Stunning life change and stunning pain. Radical transformation and wounds so deep they drove people from the church or from the faith altogether. And the connection between those two realities is critical. Those who were walking wounded after their time at Mars Hill wouldn't have those wounds if they hadn't first experienced something profound at the church. And in a twisted way, that pain wouldn't have been tolerated over the years if there hadn't been a sense of kingdom advancement. As we ask who killed Mars Hill, we have to look at the character issues that led to Mark's leave of absence and resignation. And we'll do that a lot as this series goes on. But you have to ask bigger questions, too. Questions about the culture of a church that tolerated and even enabled that behavior for years. Here's how Joe Day, a worship leader who was on staff for a decade there, described it. The prevailing justification for pretty much all the carnage that happened within Mars Hill was, hey, look at the fruit. Look at all the people that are coming to Christ. Look at all the people that are being baptized. Uh, look at all these stories of redemption. Could, could those things be real if Mark was, you know, off the rails? <laughs> and eventually, I mean, that became Mark himself. Like, you know, there's there was a Mars Hill training day where Mark got up and talked for about an hour about he is the brand. And our role is essentially to bring people in the doors so that Mark can preach to them because he's more effective than everybody else. I mean, it was blunt. Too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. I am all about blessed subtraction. This is from a church planner's boot camp in October 2007. The day before, Mark and the executive team had fired two elders who'd raised objections to changes in the church governance policy. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. 
this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the boss, they gotta get run over. There are people who wanna take turns driving the boss, they gotta get thrown off. Because <laughs> they wanna go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus, leaders and helpers and servants, they're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting, just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people, they're just gonna sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. Uh, you need to gather a whole new core. I'll tell you guys what too, you don't do this just from your church planting or replanting, I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. For a long time at Mars Hill, there was a tolerance for this sort of thing. Like many organizations, the relational fallout from people being run over by the bus was just part of doing business. But as the years went on, as that pile of dead bodies grew higher and higher, the tolerance lowered and a consensus grew inside the church that there had to be change. Part of the solution was simply that Mark became more and more insulated from other people. Separate offices, limited access, changing phone numbers and email addresses. And part of it came with intentional efforts to recruit help for healing the wounds. One of those involved Paul David Tripp, a respected biblical counselor and author who had years of experience working with church leaders. He joined the board of advisors in November 2013 and worked for eight months trying to facilitate a reconciliation process between Driscoll and those who were expressing concerns and hurt. But he resigned the board eight months later, in July of 2014. When he did, it was big news, covered in many major news outlets because of the bad omen it seemed to be for Mars Hill. Shortly after that, at a retreat for Mars Hill's lead pastors. A group of them gathered in a conference room and called him, looking for guidance and hoping to see a way forward. Tripp was not optimistic. This is, without a doubt, the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. In fact, I would say this, any local church whether it's 50 or 50,000, that whose leadership culture is not shaped by the same grace it, it says it believes, is, is unbiblical and heading for trouble. Now, I have said from the beginning, Marsville Church, Mark Driscoll, deals with its sins or it's done. I, I absolutely believe this. It's done. It's over. There is, you guys may not know this, there's a firestorm coming that's worse than what you've been through. To hear more of the first episode of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.